millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Derek. And I'm Elowa. And in this episode of Derek Draper's Space, we're going to be talking about chapter three of the book, Space to Decide. Ah, okay. The book opens with this, uh, the chapter opens with this lesson. If you want to be a creative, visionary, strategic leader, you have to create the space to be clear about what you think, make bold decisions and communicate these with confidence. And there's a really lovely quote in the chapter by Michelle Obama. And I thought you could um, use that as the prompt because it really relates to the story. Yeah, yep, yep. Okay, let me just uh, find it. I I know it roughly, but yeah. No, so Michelle Obama said, you can't make decisions based on fear and the possibility of what might go wrong. Mm. We return to that, don't we, in the the three, there's three things we're going to look at and that sums up one of them, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Or two of them, actually, I think. So tell us about Hans. Hans. Now, Hans was uh, a guy that I worked with um, who um, had a pretty rough time when he was growing up, right? And it shaped how he felt about, I mean, I won't spoil the story, but how he, how confident he was about expressing his opinions, right? He lived in quite a kind of forbidding, repressive family. Um, and he was a finance guy. And as he went up through his career, you know, he didn't have to give that many opinions, right? He had to know his stuff and he had to be able to kind of give facts. Um, but as he became more senior, he was part of like leadership teams where people would be looking for him to contribute more than just some accounting facts, right? He was also being asked to just join the discussion, right? Discussion on marketing, what do you think happens? And he couldn't really do it. Outside of his own domain, where he was really good, actually, and, and very confident and impressive, Outside of his domain, he, he, he couldn't do it, right? Um, and we looked a little bit about what had caused that and, and what we, how we could free him. And interestingly, what, what, as is often the case when you're trying to change your behavior, if you tried a bit, it might not be as hard as you think, right? There's a great phrase in, in AA, which is fake it until you make it, right? So hands went in quite prepared initially, right, to make one or two points, right? But he instantly got feedback, which was, ah, it's really great contributions, right? And that gave him the confidence to do more, you know. Now, how that relates to decision-making is that unless you know what you think and are willing to express it, right, how can you make a decision about anything, right? 
So it's very important for Hans to master this sense that his view mattered. What he'd been told when he was a kid was his view didn't matter. I think a lot of people can relate to Hans's dilemma about maybe not necessarily knowing what you think. Um, but this idea of creating space to decide and, and, as you were saying, even make bold decisions and really commit and have some conviction behind what you yeah. suggest and what you input, it can also manifest in other ways. But um, we'll, I want to talk uh, in a bit about the um, decision fatigue and the mm -hmm. studies that have been done around that because I think yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. But there's this really interesting thing that you talk about, these three psychological realities mm -hmm. that we're all facing, whether we identify or relate to hands or not. Yeah. What are they, Derek? Yeah. Well, so the first one is that you, you can't um, make a big decision, whether it's personal or professional, but we, we're focused on the professional in the book, um, without it causing you some anxiety, right? So, so if you avoid decisions or avoid roles which require decisions, which might mean that you're limiting your career, right? You're putting a sort of, you know, seat, you're putting your own glass ceiling over your head, Um because you think, well, I am going to get anxious. I'm not going to know what the answer is. I'm not going. Then that's the case for everybody, right? And and in fact, if if you don't have anxiety about making an important decision, there's something wrong. Yeah, right? I actually find that incredibly liberating because I'm someone who probably does relate somewhat to hands and finds decisions quite stressful, quite anxiety inducing, and actually just accepting that making a decision is going to generate some anxiety. That in itself is incredibly liberating because it takes away the underlying assumption that I need to be clear and free of anxiety in order to make this decision. It's like, no, 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 make the decision. There'll be some anxiety, but actually it's a lot more freeing than just sitting in that space of indecision, which is just horrible. It feels really debilitating. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the first psychological truth or, or mm. reality. The second one's about information. Yeah. So you're never going to have all the information you feel you need. Right. So again, it, it, you're constraining your ability to take a decision. If you think I need to know everything before I decide, right, it isn't possible. Yes, you do have to open up your eyes and ears and listen, right, and 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 work out what the possibilities are. But at the end of the day, you then have to kind of decide, right. There's a kind of rather vulgar saying which I won't uh, say, but it's true, right. You know, either do it or get off the pot, right. So. In reality, you, you, you are going to always have the risk that there was something that you could have known or should have known that would have led to a different decision. But again, the point is that's always true. So you see, if if you if you it's true with both of the things we've talking about, and also the third one when we get onto it. If you say, "Well, because I'm going to get anxious, I'm not going to make a decision," right? You will never make decisions. If you say, well, I, I'm not going to make a decision until I have all the information, it's impossible you won't make decisions. So unconsciously what will happen is you will craft a life where you don't have to make decisions, which of course is not the reality of life. What you're really doing is crafting a life where everyone else is going to make your decisions for you. There's something inherently passive about that and That's something... Right. Um, one of my favourite acronyms is that you're either being reactive or creative, right. and it, it feels more like it's it, it, it's in the reactive side, in yeah, in the sense right. of life being done to you rather than by you. Um, so two powerful things there. What's the third psychological reality that we kind of have to face? Well, uh, the third one is the obvious one in a way, right? Which is you might be wrong, mm. right? No one is is perfect, mm. right? Steve Jobs, who everyone lauds as this great, amazing thinker creator, 
decision maker, right? Said when people in Apple suggested the original iPhone was bigger, he said no one will ever want a phone that you can't put your hand around. Well, he was wrong, right? You know, so he also, have you heard of the Lisa computer? No. Nope. Right? <laughs> one of Steve Jobs' great inventions that didn't go anywhere, right? So the fact that even Steve Jobs makes mistakes, right, doesn't doesn't mean that he's not a success, right? And to be honest, you could almost measure your success as a decision maker, not just by the number of decisions you get right, but also by the number of decisions you get wrong, because it's inevitable that some will go wrong. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I don't want to ever be wrong, you won't be making you won't be making decisions, right? And if anyone ever says, well, I do make decisions, but I'm never wrong, right? They are, they are deluding themselves because they, they, they will have been wrong. And of course, that's the chance to learn from your mistakes, you know. So as Samuel Beckett said, you know, fail better, mm -hmm. right? That, that is the purpose of, of, this kind, of this chapter of the book. It's to allow people to realize that making decisions, yes, you can have all sorts of, you know, we might talk about biases and you want to try and remove biases. You know, I think we, we may talk about the decision cycle and how you might make a decision. But 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 all that comes to naught unless you embrace these three fundamental psychological truths, which is you're probably going to be anxious. You won't have all the information you think you might need and you might be wrong. But that's OK, actually. Yeah. And I think in... Um the kind of Google-led world, it can be so tempting to just stay down the rabbit hole, to just, you know, there's so much talk now about anxiety. It's like, well, if I'm feeling anxious, something's wrong, yeah, um, or, yeah. or this this idea of everything being really competitive and high-performance-driven. Oh, I don't want to make a mistake. And actually, I think those three things are really liberating, especially when you take them in tandem. So you mentioned the decision-making cycle. Let's take a look at that. Yeah. So, so the decision-making cycle is is a, a is a way of, and in fact, if anyone's um, checked in with our uh, episode on um, reflection, they, they might remember the reflection cycle, right? So, the decision-making cycle is saying, look, what is your goal, right? So, in other words, what's the desired outcome of the decision, right? Um, what are you actually deciding about and have clarity on that? And often people don't have that, you see. So the, the goalposts move. You know, we, we thought we were deciding on how, uh, you know, on the the, 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 the the most brilliant thing we could do. And actually, we're sort of deciding on the thing we can afford to do. They're very different, right? So you've got to define with clarity what the decision is. And then you need to reflect on it a bit. And as I say, there's a whole uh, chapter in the book on reflecting. Gather data analyze right but also tap into your intuition intuition is a very powerful thing right and you kind of need to do a dance between the two you know my intuition says x check that out with a bit of data but you can as you said go down a rabbit hole of that right and do it endlessly at some point you are going to have to actually make a decision which is about listing the alternatives right so um, you need to kind of, you know, to an extent, formalize what your options are and then again reflect on each of them. And then you have to actually decide, right? Uh, and then you can review and reflect how your decision went and you, you might learn something about that from future decisions. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, you know, this, this, the part of the book that's about to think and this the, the, to decide is the, is the end of that bit, is the third one. Uh, I like to sum it up with, you know, the type of thing, if it's reflection, it's primarily about yourself, but also about the world. And the dynamic is to open up, close somewhat, but stay open for more. So you're reflecting to a purpose, 
but it's sort of ongoing. Learning, which is like chapter two, is primarily about the world, but also about yourself. And that's to open up and keep opening up, right? We never stop learning. And then deciding, which we're talking about now, is the focus is a particular issue or question. And the dynamic is open up and then close, you know, and, and, and make that decision. I think there's something, um, you know, a, a business, a team, an organisation can recover from a misstep, but actually just being in that state of, of indecision, of not having, not committing, not making a choice can be really, really damaging to the team, to the organisation as a whole. Absolutely. There's um, something I like in the book that's very practical is the discussion of um, decision fatigue. Yeah. So as I understand it, there was a study of uh, a lot of parole decisions that judges would make. And I think there was a study of about 1,100 of them, mm. just over. And what they found was it was nothing to do, that the, the decision as to whether parole was granted or not did not in the end come down to the uh, the, 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 the ethnicity of the person it came down to nothing about the difference or diversity or the case the details of the case it came down to the time of day when judges were refreshed first thing in the morning or after a break they were much more likely to grant parole i think it was something like 72 percent of cases got granted parole don't quote me on the yeah. stats but it's really significant and it dropped and drops and drops because as the judges got more and more fatigued by having to make more and more decisions they, they hedge their bets yeah. because the complexity of having to kind of consider all the nuances and all the possibilities of what might happen, it, it does two things. One of them is it, it it does make you more likely to make an impulsive decision. And that's that moment, I know it in myself, where you just go, oh, I'll just have that for dinner. I'll just reach for the donut. I'll just go for the easy option. Right. But for the judges, the easy option was just to not grant parole. Right, okay. So, so all things being bets. equal, better, better not to. Yeah. Um, and then when they yeah. take a break, they come back and their decision-making skills are completely refreshed right. because their brains had a chance to switch off. Well, there you go. I suppose the lesson there is if, you, if you've got a tricky conversation with your boss, do it after lunch, right? After they've had a break or something. Exactly. Um, I mean, Barack Obama um, talked about how he only had uh, two types of suits uh, and some ties that matched the suits. So his wardrobe was very minimalist, right? It wasn't to do with taste. He said, I, I designed so many things all day, I, I don't want to make any other decisions. He didn't want to have to stand at his wardrobe thinking, what ties should I wear with that suit? Because that would mean that he couldn't take a decision much later, you know, that was more important. And there's plenty of those examples. You can just go into a coffee shop nowadays and be overwhelmed by yeah. having to simply choose what to drink. Yeah, absolutely. There's another thing that we have to consider in decision-making and creating the space to decide and to decide well, which is biases, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. There's quite a lot of different biases. There's quite a lot of talk nowadays, isn't there, about unconscious biases. And I know that... Um, uh, Harvard, I think it was, released a bunch of tests that you can take to see if you have an unconscious bias to, uh, around size or around race or around age. Yeah. But in the book, you talk about different kinds of uh, different kinds of unconscious bias. Do you want to talk us through? That? Yeah, I mean, these are kind of classic um, kind of things that psychology has known for quite a long time, right? So, so they're less to do with being biased in those ways, around and more to do, yeah, and more to do with kind of thing. I mean, I'll give you, you know, two or three examples. I mean, um, optimism bias, you know, we overestimate the likelihood of good things happening and underestimate the chance of bad things happening, right? 
um, source credibility, which does touch on diversity. We tend to accept things from people who are similar to us or who we like more rather than those who differ from us or we don't like. So again, you know, it's not to do with the quality of the advice you're getting or the, you know, support. It's, are they like me? And if they're like me, I'll tend to think they're right. Um, recency, we tend to take more account of things that happened recently and less accounts of things we discovered or experienced in the past. Now that affects, um, you know, people having their annual review, right? When the, the boss will be going on and on about the thing that happened two weeks ago. Well, there's a clue in the title, it's annual. So if you're doing one of those, by the way, you have to, again, create space to stop and reflect a little bit and think, how has this person done over the last year? I don't just want to think about the last thing they did, which, of course, if you're lazy thinking, that's what will happen, right? What Daniel Canahan called fast thinking. You need to bring a bit of slow thinking to, to something like that. Um, and I think the book um, covers 10, you know, the sunk cost fallacy. Um, is a great one. It's we persevere with things even when we have realized they won't work just because we've already put so much time and effort into them, which is a sort of definition of insanity if you think about it, right? It's like uh, this is a lost hope. I'm flogging a dead horse, whatever cliche you want to use, but I'm still going to do it because I've done all that work on it or I spent all that money on it. Well, no, don't spend any more on it. Don't spend any more time or money on something that you know isn't right, right? But it's very hard for us to do that. So being aware of these 10 biases, and there's actually hundreds, but these, I think, are the 10 that come up a lot in the work I do with kind of business leaders. That will affect the quality of your decision-making, just bringing yourself, these biases into your awareness. Thank you, Derek. I have one question for you mm -hmm. uh, to close this episode. If someone is watching this who f feels that they don't have any issue making decisions you know i just bam 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 i just make decisions it's not an issue for me um the thing that's on my mind is that the chapter in the book the idea is about creating space to decide and i wonder what you would say to that kind of person yeah so i i think that um whether you think you're good at making decisions or bad at making decisions stopping and thinking about how you make decisions and, and what the outcomes are is of benefit, right? Um, you know, it, it may be you're, you're good at it, but, but maybe you're not, maybe when you look under the bonnet, you're not so good at it, right? Vice versa, maybe you think you're not good at it, but if you look under the bonnet, you kind of are, right? So self-reflection is something that everyone should do, whether they think they need it or not, right? Because the chances are, if you do it properly and you're a human being, you will find out that you do need it. And that's what I love about the book is how all the concepts tie together because inherent in what you're saying is the idea that we need to create the space and the time and the right environment and the right partnerships and relationships to do this self-reflection. Reflecting is chapter one. And by doing that, you learn more about yourself, which is chapter two. Yeah, and then you're in a better position to make better decisions, which is chapter three. Great, thank you so much. So to find out more, head over to DerekDrapers.space and join us for a future episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.